Hello, and welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show about climate and energy issues by young people, that's us, for all people, that's you. This week, I'm announcing the beginning of this match. Well, it's not a match, but it's a show about meat and food. And now I turn it over to Evan. There you go, Evan. <laughs> well, clearly Steve has found the echo function on his microphone. I'm really not looking forward to the day that mashes up with the Ted Cruz impression. Hey. Uh, um, hello, and welcome to the Renewable Generation, everyone. Uh, I wanted to start off this week with uh, a simple question. What did you guys eat today? Kelly, you start. Um, today, I had a salad. <laughs> I had a spinach salad with beans and cherry tomatoes and goat cheese um, with a homemade balsamic dressing. And then I had some carrots and hummus, which is very good. Oh, wow. Describing that as just a salad seems like a, a diss on that salad. That's a fancy little meal. Hey. True. I'm, you're dissing salads. I think salads are great and they have a lot of potential. And the fact that you're assuming that all salads must be sad is uh, insulting to me personally. <laughs> I'm deeply offended. Damn. I'd like to apologize to all salads that may be listening to this podcast. Uh, Steve, take me through your, uh, your diet today. Um, <laughs> for lunch, I had a sandwich in the car. It wasn't all that. <laughs> it wasn't anything to be impressed by. I was driving. Well, I actually went to go get a rapid COVID test because I'm starting to come down with something. I had to travel for work this past week. Um, and I came back and I, I was coming. I'm coming down with something like right now. So I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> this is this is my time. I'm done. No, but I got a rapid COVID test. I came back negative, so I'm just regular sick. Oh, nice. Well, I'm uh, I'm sorry for lulling you into a false sense of security here, but I actually have a two-parter uh, to add on to this, and it's a little bit tougher. What do you think the environmental effect of your diet was today? Um, I guess I can start. So I think in terms of environmental impact, I also did eat some almonds which are notoriously bad for the environment because it takes a lot of water to grow them and they're grown in the California desert. Um, <laughs> so I think in terms of water use, eating nuts is probably not the greatest thing. Although um, meat is probably still worse in terms of water consumption than um, nuts just because it takes water to grow the feed that they then feed the animals. Um, and then in terms of like dairy and stuff, goats... Um, are less bad for the environment than cows because they don't um, have, their digestive system is slightly different, so they produce less methane. So on the cheese front, I only put a tiny bit of cheese, but it's less bad than cow cheese. Um, I would say it's, it was probably a decent. I mean, so my sandwich had cheese and um, turkey breast in it, as well as mustard and then whole wheat bread. So, I mean, I think it's like, not too bad, um, but, you know, still got meat in it, still got cheese in it. Um, I know those are some of the, some of the, some bad stuff for the environment, so. But how, how bad is it? I mean, so, Kelly, you mentioned, like, some cheese being a sin. Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so, um, this study from uh, the Environmental Working Group, um, they did a life cycle assessment of meat and the um, emissions or kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent per kilogram of consumed food. So lamb has the highest emissions per kilogram of 39.2 
kilograms of carbon dioxide per kilogram of lamb. Beef is quite a bit lower than that, 27. Cheese is about half of that, 13.5. Um, and pork is 12.1. Farmed salmon, 11.9. Turkey, 10.9. Chicken, 6.9. Canned tuna, 6.1. Eggs, 4.8. And then after that, um, it's a bunch of different um, plant foods, which are all about under three uh, kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent for the emissions for both the production and um, post-production, which includes processing, transport, retail cooking, and waste disposal. So this is a life cycle assessment, um, which basically takes into account all the aspects of um, transportation, uh, transportation, um, production, and uh, consumption of the food. So actually, interestingly, milk has a very low a carbon footprint per kilogram of consumed food. But that makes sense because milk is mostly water. So if you're normalizing by a unit of weight and you're like, okay, of course the water itself is not really creating that much emissions. Whereas with cheese, even though it has a high emissions per kilogram, like think about it, eating a six ounce steak, that's like a normal serving size. But like who is going to eat a six ounce block of cheese? Like I really like eating cheese. And I think eating six ounces in one sitting is pretty aggressive. Yep. And, and what you hear there is Kelly, um, take a morally defending her love of cheese because as you did hear it here that cheese is third worst. It's, it's actually worse for the environment than pork. So, <laughs> I mean, sorry to all the cheese lovers, including myself, but it's just fun to, to poke fun at Kelly over here. <laughs> I also think, I mean, we're getting caught up in arguing about who is <laughs> being worse to the environment through their diet when we should be asking ourselves, why do we eat the things that we eat? And how can they be related to other aspects of our life, like our cultures or even masculinity? Steve, you want to start this one out? Yeah, so... This so we wanted to start off this episode with going through some of the numbers and some of the rankings of foods in terms of climate damage, right? But I also, but so I wanted to establish that we wanted to establish that as a baseline. But I think zooming out a little bit here to more of a societal, um, cultural lens here, I think meat and masculinity are such interesting concepts. They're, they're intertwined. Um, so I want to first start off with maybe some evolutionarily, just to like have some context on, onto who we are as human beings. So I, I understand that, so first let's establish that, that manhood and, and meat are so strongly tied in our society, right? You see these advertisements like man meat, you see like there's literally a brand called man meat. And, you know, so many men don't cook at all, but they will grill. You know, I know a lot of guys like that in my life. Um, you know, eating a burger is considered manly, you know, instead of eating a salad, which is con- relatively considered effeminate, which is interesting, right? There's like, there's, there's such a, um, a, a carnivorous um, and like manly, you know, hair on your chest kind of feeling in, in, our, in our culture. I think that does stem back from, from evolutionary times, like from the caveman era, for the most part, men did the hunting and women did not do the hunting. So there's, there's some aspect of hardwired, um, you know, lizard brain stuff going on there. Um, but you know, that's thousands of years ago, maybe tens of hundreds of thousands of years ago now. And it's still a huge part of our society. Um, you even look at vegetarians in our world, you know, most, I think most vegetarians are probably women and less men feel comfortable making that step. Um, and I just think that's, I just think it's an interesting pressure, um, because if we're really being serious about trying to solve climate change, we have to get off of meat. 
Um, and essentially what I'm saying here is that if we have to get off of meat, we have to solve toxic masculinity. Are you fact checking right now, Kelly? Yeah. I had a feeling. <laughs> yeah. So I actually found, um, some studies showing that, uh, out of the 1 million Americans that are vegan, so this article is from 2014. There's way more than 1 million vegan Americans now, I believe. 79% of them are women. When it comes to vegetarians, the gender divide is not as severe. It's actually 59% women and 41% men. And I think also this, I think um, there's actually a lot of cultures that are traditionally vegetarian, like South Indian cultures, and they're like men are also vegetarian. So I think that might explain some of the difference. Right. But among right. cultures that are not um, traditionally uh, vegetarian, I think you would see this gender divide. And I think it's also um, because women, there's a lot of social pressure to have to be thin and like orthorexia is actually a big problem. That's uh, eating disorder where you're like overly obsessed with eating clean. I think it's more likely that, um, for instance, vegetarianism and veganism can be an avenue to try to maintain the ideal body type. So I know earlier we were kind of joking about like, oh, like this food is um, bad for the environment, blah, blah, blah. But I just also want to throw a word of caution, like being obsessed with your individual food choices can actually lead to like crippling anxiety and mental health issues. So while it's something that's important to keep in mind, like do not go overboard with it. Um, Some people, they can get to the point where they're like, oh my God, like it's this vegan option that's wrapped in more plastic, which is worse that one or like the vegetarian option that is has compostable packaging. And at that point, it's like you're splitting hairs. It's not worth your personal energy to get that obsessed with everything. Um, and instead, um, just try to do the best you can generally try to um, support um, eating more plant-based um, diet in your life. Um, so I also wanted to comment on Stephen's point about the quote unquote hair on your chest because um, my dad, so when he was in college, um, one of his friends was like, I eat beef because if you eat a lot of beef, you'll grow chest hair. Yeah. <laughs> that was literally saying. his reasoning. <laughs> I always heard that about milk when I was a kid. Milk and bourbon. <laughs> yeah. That's, those are such common like phrases that you'll hear, you know, put some hair on your chest and that's, those are associated with those kinds of, of foods. I mean, it's, it's meat, but also those foods. Um, and, and as we know, food is a huge part of our culture. Um, and then going into what you what you were talking about, Kelly, about, you know, the South, South Indians that don't eat meat in the, in the first place, you know, like that's on the other hand of that same coin, you have cultures where meat is a huge staple, a huge central part of that culture. Um, and I've talked in the past in this podcast about that being part of why it's hard for me to switch off of meat entirely. I'll always want a good Peruvian, like lomo saltado or like a pollo a la brasa. Like I'm always going to crave that. Um, but then there are other cultures which don't have to deal with that as much. Yeah. What's really interesting to me is that actually, um, Asian cultures have a long history of developing meat substitutes. So um, in China, if you go to these like restaurants that are in the Buddhist temple, they have all these like huge variety of fake meats of like fake pork belly, fake fish, and they're quite good. Um, but that's that's more of a novelty. And they also eat a lot of um, soy based products, like different varieties of tofu. Like Evan, you're like, oh, I just tried tofu for the first time. Go to an agent store, see how many like tens of different types of tofus they have. It's awesome. 
I would like the record to show I did not try tofu for the first time. I oh, cooked sorry, tofu sorry, for sorry, the first sorry. time. I have been eating tofu. <laughs> okay, yeah. Fact check. <laughs> um, but um, in Asian cultures also, it's very interesting because my parents grew up in China under um, communism in China where they literally had rations of meat. So for them, it's like they can't, they worked this hard to get to a place where you can eat like whatever meat you want. And to them, it's like unthinkable that given this abundance, you would choose to not eat meat. And I think that's a different um, kind of cultural paradigm because for, for them, like growing up with such a small amount of meat, it's something that signifies um, abundance. And therefore they, um, they're really interested in like eating it. Yeah. Because I mean, Going off of that, I just think that, like, in the United States, it's almost become the opposite, where now meat is, like, meat isn't a rarity in the U.S. It's almost a given in every meal. And especially when you look at fast food, which is, like, the most accessible of all food, every fast food restaurant serves some form of meat. I mean, you can debate what you want, like, Taco Bell, like, is it meat? But (laughs) you you can technically call that a meat alternative. Uh, But I... I, I think in the United States, it's a completely opposite perception where uh, meat is like the almost the working man's uh, meal. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And it feels like I think there's a lot of there's like if we zoom out of maybe the, the gendered lens or zoom out of the cultured lens, too. It's also from a cost basis. It almost feels like, you know, meat is a it's very accessible, but it's also like you get a lot of nutrition per, you know, dollar spent like you can you can stretch your dollar so far and just eat meat um but i know yeah kelly's gonna tell me about the health benefits of other okay go ahead go ahead kelly no i'm not i wasn't gonna talk about the health benefits i was just gonna say like a lot of cows are fed soy soy is a commodity so it actually doesn't necessarily even make sense that meat is so cheap except for the fact that the feed crops for the cows are so subsidized um whereas i think the economies of scale were built up for the, um, I mean, first of all, like beans are really cheap. Like if you buy dry beans and use that as your source of protein, that is way cheaper than buying even like the crappiest ground beef. But I think a lot of people maybe don't necessarily know how to cook beans in a way that makes them taste good. Um, whereas with meat, it's a lot simpler. And so, um, that might, that might be a big issue, but, uh, if you can make like Mexican beans and, um, in the style that you like put them in your burrito with your rice, that's like a solid meal, like meatless burrito. It's great. Yeah. And Evan, let me, so let me ask you a question because I usually the one asking us, but like, so you, I mean, your family is kind of more born and raised in America, you know? Um, what is, how is meat like, I guess, yeah. How has meat been taken, like taken place in your family, like growing up and like, you know, at the table, like, how is that? express itself. I mean, yeah, and I think this was, this was an interesting topic for me because I've never felt that much of a connection with meat in masculinity or in culture. Um, I know, I'm sure, like, looking back at it, my dad has certainly said things about meat and being a man. It's been intertwined. I know my dad is certainly the barbecuer in the family while my mom is the cook and the baker. And uh, those are just, like, very, like, uh, subconscious things that have, like, been kind of internalized in me. Um, but I, I don't feel that way. I mean, part of that is like spending five years in Japan. Uh, I think there I like realized, Oh, like meat isn't 
the most important thing. Like, it, this isn't, like, how I should define myself. There's so much out there that's so much better. Yeah. So speaking of manly men, we have a special guest on our cap and trade this week. That is me, Arnold, and I'm here to talk about my <laughs> cap and trade. Oh, God. This week, I am capping my incessant meat consumption for a plant-based diet. Mm, I love those plant-based diets. You know what they say about plant-based diets? They feel... Almost as good as pumping weights. <laughs> oh, yeah, and Arnold, uh, I hear you also have this documentary out called The Game Changers about how um, athletes can thrive off a plant-based diet. So highly recommend you check that out if you haven't already. Yeah, thanks for the plug, Kenny. <laughs> oh, God. It's like disturbingly accurate how, how you do that <laughs> is it <laughs> yeah is it <laughs> oh. Oh, well. and speaking of arnold and cap and trade i also believe that the california cap and trade system was um signed into law when arnold schwarzenegger was governor so additional relevant uh, and a lifelong conservative and, you know, arguably one of the, the manliest men out there. Um, so it is true. It's possible for all of us. <laughs> I am manly. I am a manly man. All right, well. Thanks, Governor. <laughs> you heard it from the manliest of all men. You should start eating more plant-based diets. Uh, but what does that look like, um, especially in the future when we're looking at not only substitutions like tofu or tempeh, but we're even looking at synthetic meats that people like Bill Gates or, uh, or, or Stephen Hawking are praising. Sorry. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> but even people like Bill Gates are preaching. Um, what does the plant-based diet of the future look like? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, as I've also mentioned previously on the show, I think that what's really made a dent in it for me has been the impossible foods, the impossible foods and the, the beyond meats. Like, they are fully, you know, vegetarian-based meats that are, that are really not meat, but they, but they taste like meat. And damn, like, you know, like, that's pretty much all you need. Like, <laughs> like that's what I was, that's what I kind of fear. It sounds silly to say it, but, like, that's kind of, like, what I fear about, like, going off of meat is, like, the craving. Like, I crave the meat, and I, I know I really just want it. And, and I think that's, like, at, at the root of it. And these, these, like, substitutes are close enough to the point where I can't, I can't tell the difference personally. Um, so I think those are pretty cool. Like beyond meat, um, they have, they've had like deals with like beyond, like, um, with Burger King to have like the beyond Whopper, which is a damn good burger, by the way. I don't know if you've had it, but you should try it if it's out there. It is a little bit more expensive than normal meat, which is, um, you know, worth discussing too. There's, there's definitely a green premium if you're trying to, um, you know, curb your emissions, um, you do have to pay for it. Um, but overall, I thought it was really good marketing on their, on both of these companies' parts, Impossible and Beyond. They, they, they sell in the grocery store. They sell right next to the normal meat, um, at least in the ones that I go to. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think they're, those are really cool. And I think, I think that's going to get a significant chunk of people, specifically men, I think. I think it's catered towards, <laughs> towards like the masculine you know, consumer because they might feel emasculated by saying, oh, I'm not going to eat meat anymore. 
this is a way they can still have a burger. By the way, it's not healthy for you. Like the Beyond Burger is not like a healthy substitution. It's like has all the sodium, all the fat, all like the, the you know, indulgence as a normal burger. It just doesn't have meat. So pretty cool. Um, yeah, those ones are plant-based meats and, um, it's pretty interesting. So right now they only have ground beef cause that's like, you don't really need to have like the proper texture of meat, but I think, um, impossible or beyond one of the two, their, uh, their next step is to move towards making chicken nuggets, which is the step above ground beef and then trying to make actual like, like chicken, which is pretty interesting. Another, um, so this wouldn't be totally plant-based, but there's a new type of meat called a cell-based meat, which is basically they grow the meat in a lab from a cell culture. So um, there's a company called Memphis Meats um, that's doing it. Bill Gates is a big investor in them, but he says they're the meat from these cell-based meat companies at scale likely is not going to be cheaper than um, actual meat from an animal. So that's just something to keep in mind. But the life cycle environmental impact is much less. And there's also um, uh, benefits in terms of food safety as well, because there's not really any risk of like fecal contamination because it's not an actual animal that poops. <laughs> um, so that's definitely something interesting to watch. Right now it's extremely expensive, but as they scale up, hopefully the cost will come down. I know we're, we're talking about what we can do as individuals to curb carbon emissions through our meat consumption, but what can, what can big meat do about it? Well, big meat is following the money right now. They're like, actually plant-based meats are the future. And so even big um, companies like Tyson, which is I think the biggest chicken company in the world, um, they have a new line of plant-based meat products and they're not doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. They're just doing it because that's where the market is going. And so I think, um, if even these big companies are moving t more towards plant-based meats, that's a good sign for the climate, hopefully. Yeah, I think that <clears throat> that's that's such an interesting, like we talked about the synthetic meats, like that seems really cool to me as well because people won't be able to say, oh, it's not actually meat. Like those, those um, let's say those people that really just crave meat no matter what, they won't take any substitutes. But you will get, I think some people that are, um, you know, against stem cell research and against those kind of like, you know, playing with, you know, playing as God kind of people, you're going to get people saying like, oh, you can't just grow meat, you know, you can't just grow a, a dog or grow a lamb or whatever. Like you're going to get those people too. So it's funny because you always have people like waylaying progress in some way or another. Well, I think this is qualitatively different than like stem cell research. This is culturing, um, somatic cells like stem cells are cells that can evolve into any other type of cell this is like okay you literally have like a muscle cell from a cow and you're just duplicating it it has no chance of ever being becoming part of an actual animal yeah i mean i think you're looking at it kelly from like the scientific like logical point of view okay. and steve is looking at it from like the publicity the marketing like how will yeah. people turn this on like public perception like yeah, because I because I agree with you, Kelly. I I would still eat. I'd be very comfortable eating it. I also am comfortable eating GMO foods because I understand what it is and it's nothing to be afraid of. But people have you know people are against GMOs as well. So yeah, um, and then one last um, thing we wanted to mention was about some different solutions to mitigate the impact of the existing um, animal agriculture industry. So in California, one thing that they're doing is actually having um, 
uh, cows that graze on rangelands, putting compost on those lands. And basically as the cows graze and then they stomp the manure, their manure and the compost into the grass, the grass grows better and helps sequester more carbon in the soil. So actually now this is called the California Healthy Soils Initiative. And um, some farmers are actually getting payments through the state's um, cap and trade program for the carbon that they're sequestering, which is pretty cool. Another technological solution involves seaweed. Steve's a big fan of this one. Um, basically, um, there's different types of seaweed. If you add a little bit of that into the um, cow's feed, then it changes kind of the way that their digestive system works. Um, I'm not entirely sure how, like, the mechanisms behind this. Um, and I think there's ongoing research about which types of uh, seaweed or algae have the best effects. But basically, the effect of this is that um, the methane emissions from the cow's digestion are cut significantly. Um, so that's definitely very interesting. But again, another thing to note is that if we actually want to be able to feed the world as the population grows, there's all like land use is going to become an increasingly big concern. And so much of land is used to um, for animal agriculture, where if we just ate the thing that the animal was going to eat, like, OK, if we're feeding soy to cows, we could just eat the soy directly and save like 90 percent of the land use. Oh, and just circling back to um, the kelp and the seaweed idea, just want to give the buzzword for what it's called. It's called asparagopsis. I, I love that word. I just want to educate a couple of you listeners out there. Asparagopsis. It sounds like asparagus, but it's not. And I think we'll, we'll leave that segment at asparagopsis and move on to the segment that mayoral candidate Michelle Wu wants to bring to Boston. It's the Green New Spiel. Kelly, why don't you start us out? So my green news spiel for this week is that there's a bipartisan federal bill co-sponsored by Republican Senator from Montana, Steve Daines, that would bring clean energy manufacturing and recycling businesses to former fossil fuel sites and help workers transition to clean energy employment. So this is awesome because um, a lot of these communities in potentially red areas that are hurting and are going to be left behind by the potentially could be left behind by the transition to clean energy. This bill would give them the funding that they need to transition to um, the new economy. And it's bipartisan because honestly, if you're a Republican and you see that the way the world is going, like you're not, coal is not coming back. Even under the Trump presidency, coal plant closures accelerated. And so instead of trying to pander to people by saying like, oh, we're going to try to bring coal back, like look at it clear eyed and be like, okay, actually we do need to make some changes. And this bill would provide $8 billion to bring clean energy manufacturing and recycling to formal fossil fuel sites and help transition those workers to jobs in clean energy. So that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Well, now let's hear from Steve and his Green News spiel. Thank you, Evan. My Green News spiel this week is regarding a certain Jager Shaw, who I don't know if we've actually mentioned him on this podcast before, but if we haven't, you should know his name. He he is essentially a CEO, he's an entrepreneur of um, originally Sun Edison, um, and then more recently um, a financing firm called Generate Capital. Um, and he recently um, has been, oh, I mean, I forgot to mention, he's, he's like the co-host of this podcast that, that we love to listen to called The Energy Gang, um, which is a, it's just a product of green tech media. So Jigger is a, is a very well-known voice in the clean energy industry. He's active on all the social medias, but as well as on the political level and a um, decently middle of the way um, in terms of politics goes. Very um, middle, middle road, I would say, if, if not a little conservative. 
Um, and he was recently uh, appointed to be the director of the loan programs at DOE um, and this uh, Department of Energy under um, Director Granholm. So he's essentially Secretary Granholm. So he's essentially going to be doing what his job is now, which you know I mentioned he's a he's a fi- he's a finance guy and he's essentially like develops projects. He's going to be doing that on the national level now, deploying loans um, for for the government. So I think it's pretty exciting to see that he's an extremely experienced individual, very competent, and he's just going to be taking his skills to a higher um, reach. Um, so really good. Um, Really strong advocate to have in our corner. Um, really excited to see the the scale of clean energy deployment that's going to happen over the next four years. Yeah, and I would also like to say that um, the Energy Gang and Jigger Shaw were a big inspiration for us in the creation of this show. This is true. So he's actually leaving the Energy Gang podcast because he has to be as unbiased as possible um, it, working for the federal government. He has a tendency to say all sorts of crazy stuff on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so he has to be off of it now. Um, but definitely he was a big inspiration to us and the loan um, guarantee program. So it's actually best known. Um, fun fact for the loan that they gave to Solyndra, which is... Um, a very famous Republican talking point saying that the government um, loan program is a failure. Although um, what it should be doing, it should be more noted for its loans to companies like Tesla who actually paid the loan back in full. And they actually ended up, the loan program in total ended up returning like $500 million to the American taxpayer because these companies paid their loans back with interest. Um, So this is definitely a great program for um, companies that they want a loan, but um, the private sector is kind of iffy and won't give it to them. The government should be the one funding these technologies because we need these innovative technologies to be able to um, fight climate change. Yeah, and and exactly right. And this this program is specifically built this way. Like these loans are meant to be kind of like bets in a way. They place a bunch of well-educated, well-researched bets that could have potential wide-ranging impact such as Tesla and sometimes you're going to have bets that go wrong you know but if on average most of your bets succeed and some of them go wrong you're all right in the end so that's that's kind of people point to this like as Kelly's Kelly's saying like people point to this as a failure of the the program but this is by design yeah and if everything that you're betting on is winning then it probably means that you're not investing in risky enough stuff because the point of the program is to invest in things that might not work out. And if it does work out, then you do well. If it doesn't, like you tried. And so I think it's really cool that we have um, a clean energy o- entrepreneur in the office who understands what it takes to deploy these technologies. Well, with that, we wrap up the segment and we wrap up the show. Thanks, as always, for listening to The Renewable Generation. As always, you can find us on Twitter at GenRenewPod or on Facebook, The Renewable Generation. Or are we... Are we generating a new pod on Facebook now? Yes. Oh, Echo Steve is back. Uh, Echo Steve, you wanna you wanna play us out? Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. See, See you, you next, next week. week.